From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, in the aftermath of President Donald Trump's controversial press conference with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, I speak with Boston University professor Leah Greenfeld about the potential ramifications that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? All I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me, and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. The probe is a disaster for our country. I think it's kept us apart. It's kept us separated. There was no collusion at all. Uh, everybody knows it. As to who is to be believed and to who is not to be believed, you can trust no one if you, if you take this. Where did you get this idea that President Trump trusts me or I trust him? He defends the interests of the United States of America, and I do defend the interests of the Russian Federation. We should be guided by facts. Could you name a single fact that would definitively prove the collusion this is utter nonsense. Those are excerpts from the press conference between President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. President Putin was speaking through a translator. Much of the discussion in the aftermath of the Helsinki press conference between President Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin centered around the president siding with Putin in terms of Russian involvement in the 2016 elections over his own intelligence community. But is this the latest news story that has galvanized our attention in the whirling dervish known as the Trump presidency, or are there deeper concerns that warrant our exploration? To help us unpack this is Professor Leah Greenfeld. Professor Greenfeld is a professor of sociology, political science, and anthropology at Boston University. Professor Leah Greenfeld, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Much has been stated about President Trump's Helsinki press conference with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. From a geopolitical perspective, what was your takeaway? Uh, my takeaway, my takeaway uh, was that, uh, unfortunately, the public in the United States, especially the vocal public, those who talk and talk publicly, um, pay attention to really very insignificant points. How so? Well, uh, the whole problem that was uh, diagnosed, as far as I understand, is uh, that uh, Trump uh, um, 
while standing near Vladimir Putin, um, said that there was no uh, interference in uh, no Russian interference in uh, uh, American uh, elections. Uh, is that what we are referring to, Byron? Yeah, I mean that's part. That's certainly yes. that's certainly part of it. But however you however you see it, that's fine. So you go, yes. go right ahead. So um, that was, um, uh, I suppose, his uh, uh, not very successful attempt to downplay um, the downplay claims uh, that. Uh, would be very impolite and impolitic to admit in this situation. Because here he stands with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, who very clearly interfered in uh, uh, various uh, elections in foreign countries, uh, and he has to, to admit it. Well, it's not very politic to admit it in this situation, even though we all understand that things like that happen. They happen, of course, from uh, 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 the, the Russian point of view, too, uh, on the part of the U United States. Of course, we also always try to interfere and to promote our national interest in the uh, uh, elections of other countries. And this is not a secret uh, for anyone, not only the United States. Every power tries to interfere to the extent that it can in the politics of other powers in order to create a more uh, comfortable political situation for itself, right? Mm -hmm. So what is, what is the point of raising those questions? at all uh, in um, uh, a meeting, in a diplomatic meeting such as that, where two great powers are trying to present some sort of agreement and united front. There is no point in that. It is just uh, interfering with a regular political process. So why pay attention to that? Why, why ask such questions? Such questions which would be any answer to it would be embarrassing for one or the other party. Is it, is it an attempt to humiliate Ameri the American president? Is it an attempt to mess up relations with uh, uh, the Russian president? I mean, those are, those are really, and we all know, I mean, as far as political history goes, that every power tries to interfere in the affairs of other powers when it can. The question, of course, is to which extent uh, can it influence, can any interference influence anything in the other power, which is not that much, since this has been happening all the time, it is not that much that, of course, uh, the Soviet Union had much greater interference always in uh, the uh, affairs of other uh, 
States uh, than, than Russia today. And sometimes they were extremely successful. But today it is just uh, a run-of-the-mill activity of uh, the great powers. In any case, neither Russia uh, nor the United States are, are now such big powers that anyone has to be uh, afraid of their um, interference, certainly not the other side. Now we have a much greater power about whose interference we should worry if we worry about such things at all. And the great power is? And now we are thinking about China, of course. Mm -hmm. This is the power that now can do really, could wreak havoc if they wanted to, you know, in uh, the affairs of Russia, in the affairs of the United States, in the affairs of anyone else. But you know, one of, yes. So I'm sorry. One of the um, arguments that I've heard from supporters of the president was that they would offer that he's been tough on Russia, tougher than say President Obama was, and that should count more than what the president actually says. Um, is there anything to that argument? Well, yes. Uh, th this is just a factual argument. He certainly has been tougher on Russia than President Obama was. I don't think that there can be any argument about that. Of course, he didn't uh, um, uh, he didn't cede to Russia on any major issue, on nothing. Uh, while President Obama did this once and again and again and again. Uh, Yes, mm -hmm. but but this is not related to the Helsinki meeting, is it? No, no. I mean, no. I mean, that was sort of that was one of the arguments that came out of the Helsinki meeting to justify what President Trump did. So I heard people saying, "Well, he's been tough on Russia, so why are we worried about what he says? It's more about what he does." And that that was the argument that was put forth by some. Well, I I would uh, I would agree that we certainly should not focus on what he said at that meeting. Mm -hmm. I don't think he had any choice to say anything else. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, the, the president stated, um, that in terms of um, geopolitical um, landscape, that he, he thinks it's good to have good personal relations with leaders such as uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, in, 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 through your lens, is it important to have good personal relationships? Does that matter? Uh, the question is, meta for what? Well, I mean, is it like if I have, let's say, if you and I are foreign powers, uh, heads of foreign powers, uh, if, if we know each other personally, then we're going to have a we're going to have a better outcome as opposed if we don't know each other personally. Well, it is certainly not good to have bad personal relations because bad personal relations can play into politics quite directly. I don't think that good personal relations uh, can um, guarantee good outcomes, uh, but bad personal relations, I think, can guarantee bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
This is how I would uh, answer that. Mm-hmm. So it is certainly better to have good relations than bad relations. But but good, but in your words, good doesn't necessarily produce a good outcome. No, it's not necessarily. In the end, uh, in the end, the outcomes would probably be simply in the interest of those powers that we are talking about, you know, mm-hmm. and not uh, really in the personal interests of people who represent them. Go, staying with the Helsinki press conference, um, should would you have liked to have seen President uh, Trump be stronger on, say, uh, the issue with in Crimea? Because as I recall, it was uh, uh, Vladimir Putin who talked about the president's stance on Crimea. Should, he, should the president said something there, or is that the place to have that conversation? I would say that it was very unfortunate that uh, President Obama uh, allowed uh, um, Crimea uh, occupation of Crimea to happen without uttering a pip. That was really very bad. And that at this point, it is uh, certainly uh, in a situation such as Helsinki, uh, it probably is too late to suddenly uh, start second-guessing the previous administration. So uh, the situation is uh, (laughs) Crimea now belongs to Russia. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, uh, when it it belonged to Ukraine and uh, uh, the occupation was uh, just about uh, to happen or happening, then it was the time to protest and uh, do something. Now I think it is after the fact. And what what can uh, bad words, you know, change? They only can uh, sour the personal relations. That's all. Well, you you just um, in your last answer, I'm, I'm going to hark it back to something you said in your, in your very first answer. Uh, we we start talking about geopolitical uh, geopolitics. It it it. Is too much of, um, from your perspective, in the United States, do we focus too much on the moment? And I raise that because you just talked about how this started even before President Trump came in office, and we don't make the, the long-term connections. Is it, do you see it that way? Uh, yes, I do see it that way. Uh, of course, uh, one has to have a perspective, at least some historical perspective. And, and and I'm assuming that you see that that, that, that tends to be just lacking in our discourse because you said earlier how we focus on something we yes. should have been focused yes, on. Yes, you know, basically what uh, what is happening is that we are seeing a moving picture, you know, mm-hmm. and what we focus on is every single shot, every single frame, but but we we cannot interpret any single frame out of the context, right? Or out of the whole movie. Right. So, yes, it is as if, uh, as if suddenly uh, Russia became our, uh, suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, Russia appeared on uh, the world scene and uh, it appeared as our biggest enemy. It has been our enemy for a very long time. 
for a very, very long time. At least since 1945. <laughs> uh, well, at least since 1945, right. And uh, uh, there were times when it was a much, much bigger uh, danger to us and to our national interest than it is now. Uh, the situation now is such that Russia is really not our biggest concern. Maybe, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, 10 years ago, uh, maybe it was our biggest concern. You know, in uh, 2008, maybe, maybe it was our biggest concern. Wasn't it then uh, when uh, Obama uh, laughed at uh, uh, Romney? When Romney suggested yeah, yeah. that one should actually pay attention to what is to what Russia is doing, that was 2012. Yes, uh, that was 2012. Well, yes, maybe at that point uh, Russia was a, a bigger concern than it is now. Now it is certainly not our biggest concern. It is always a border. It is not our friend. We know that, and we can we must take it in the stride. You know. Mm -hmm. So how do how do you uh, how do you view um, put aside what the, put aside what everyone's talking about? How do you view uh, President Trump's uh, uh, invitation to uh, Vladimir Putin to visit the White House in the fall? Why not? Uh, this is diplomacy. Uh, I do, I think that bad relations, bad personal relations with Vladimir Putin. It's certainly worse than good personal relations with Vladimir, with, uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, it's not that good personal relations would necessarily achieve very good outcomes, but there is a, a very great chance that bad personal relations with him would achieve a bad outcome. So why not? I mean, what, what can Putin do if he comes to visit... Uh, uh, to visit as a guest, as an invited guest, comes to visit the uh, White House. <laughs> he will eat too much food. I, I don't really... What can he do? Uh, Professor Greenfeld, you're, you're making me laugh. We're supposed to have a serious dialogue here, and you're making me laugh. <laughs> no, no, your point is well taken. Um, uh, now, again, going back to geopolitics, aside from the translators... Uh, the meeting between uh, President Trump and Vladimir Putin was held between just the two of them. And so when uh, Mr. Putin comes out and says we have agreements, uh, Mr. Trump says we don't have agreements, is this uh, problematic going forward? The question is where are we going? Going forward towards what? Well, th that seems to be the question everybody has right now. We don't, we don't know where we're going. Right. Okay, so uh, to answer this question, we uh, need first to know what, what was it our intention to achieve? And was our intention to achieve the same thing that was the intention of Vladimir Putin to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. Did we speak about any particular policy that is important from our point of view? Did we speak... Uh, about only some particular policy that is important for Russia. I don't know. So I think in terms of 
whether there was a contradiction. I'm not sure that there was a contradiction. If they were talking about two different things, then from the point of view of Russia, they did achieve some agreement. From our point of view, they didn't achieve some agreement. It it depends completely on what was the intention to achieve, right? Right. I guess, I guess that would be the point of when you have no one else in the room. That That's sort of unprecedented in terms of our uh, diplomatic protocols. Right. Okay. Diplomatic protocol, uh, I am afraid that I really cannot say anything about the importance of diplomatic protocol. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I have a very long historical perspective, and I don't deal only with Russia and the United States, but with many other countries, and I can tell you that protocols are different and they change. So I, I don't know uh, how much should we invest in uh, breaking our diplomatic protocol. I, I simply don't know mm -hmm. what is the importance of sticking to a protocol. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Boston University Professor Leah Green Greenfeld. Uh, Professor Greenfeld, uh, I know this is an area of a particular interest to you, but the way this, um, the way you see the, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, conference in Helsinki. Does this have any impact on the work you've done around the globalization of nationalism? Uh, no, it doesn't have any impact, but it is certainly a reflection on what I have done uh, in this regard because uh, it shows very clearly that nationalism around the world certainly in uh, these two very large countries um, and very important countries is alive and well and is not going anywhere, not weakening. Um, so, yeah, in this respect, uh, it is a reflection of what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And I should have started with this, but I'll ask you now for our listeners. Um, could you just give us, a, 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 when you talk about the globalization of nationalism, what, what does that look like for you? Well, the most important part of globalization of nationalism is that uh, we usually consider globalization the opposite of nationalism. But in fact, the only, the only uh, phenomenon the only area in which any kind of uh, uh, um, creating a common language between different countries is happening in uh, bringing them closer within a single framework, the only area in which it is happening is in the spread of national consciousness. National consciousness, um, until uh, about, uh, let's say, last uh, 50 years, 50 years ago, spread mostly within the civilization in which it was born, that is, within the monotheistic civilization, within uh, societies uh, which were based on one or another of the um, monotheistic religions, 
which has three in number, but the uh, two great religions of Christianity and Islam belong to that. So uh, national consciousness until 50 years ago spread mostly within this one civilization where it also emerged in England in the 16th century. But what happened in the last uh, uh, 50 years is that national consciousness became global consciousness. It broke through the boundaries of the monotheistic civilization and penetrated very deep now into the masses, colossal masses, of the population in China and in India. So it globalized. And national consciousness is an extremely competitive consciousness, unlike many others. And this is what... So this penetration of nationalism into China not just to the leadership of China, which happened already in the beginning of the 20th century, but uh, to the masses of the Chinese people, made China extremely competitive and is responsible for the unexpected and extraordinary, spectacular rise of China to the position of the major superpower in every respect. So it changes, it really changes the direction of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about globalization of nationalism. When nationalism became a global phenomenon, which it was not until 50 years ago, uh, we really have a major change in the direction of history. And, and with that change of history, then it would stand the reason you would have a change in policy. Well, uh, there would be change in policy uh, where, of course, in China, you, it, you immediately see a change in policy. In China, you see this competitive mentality and competitive policies that simply didn't exist before. This is what we see as the rise of China. This is what we experience in the ri- as the rise of China. Now, when you talk about changes in policy in the previous superpowers, right, uh, in uh, the United States, in Russia, uh, maybe in uh, Western European uh, policies. For the change in policy, you first have to have the change in understanding. You first have to recognize that this change happened. Then you will start changing your policies. So far, I don't see this understanding, uh, uh, certainly not on the part of the West, certainly not on the part of the United States. Uh, as you see with this uh, Helsinki uh, hula baloo, uh, the the public in the United States is still focused on uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know uh, Russians interfere with uh, uh, try to interfere with our elections as they always did, mm-hmm. right? As they always have done. This is nothing new. So this is. This is not the understanding that Russia now is not 
our major concern. So how would this lead to the change in policies if you don't have the understanding? Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you, uh, here in America, we tend to use nationalism and patriotism almost interchangeably. Is, is that accurate? It is accurate because uh, we are, when we talk about patriotism, we talk about national patriotism. National patriotism is nationalism, yes. President Trump, at least uh, publicly, yes, ha- has appears to be far more deferential to autocrats than to some of our long-held Western allies. Is this is this much ado about nothing, or is this a legitimate concern in your view? Um, I would say that it is a matter of appearance to begin with. It seems to me that uh, President Obama, for example, was extremely differential to autocrats. So, uh, but nobody, nobody was. Uh, he was certainly extremely differential to Vladimir Putin. He was also very differential to Iranian autocrats. He was also very differential to uh, the Saudi autocrats. I mean, uh, so I, I don't see any great. Here. Now, in terms of uh, the United States Western allies, should there be a uh, should there be cause for concern based on, and I want to say this this based on the optics. Should there be cause for concern uh, based on the optics of the press conference from Western allies? There should be no concern from our point of view about the attitude of our Western allies. Unfortunately, our Western allies haven't proven extremely helpful to the United States as of uh, recently in anything. It was the other way around. We have been helping them. So if suddenly they turn up their noses, they have always been turning up their noses at us. I mean, when have we been loved by our Western European allies? They have always considered us savages. When have we been looked up to by our Western allies? We were only looked up to by our allies in Eastern Europe. They always admired the United States because the United States was opposed to the Soviet Union. But our Western allies, and do you, do you remember when they loved us? <laughs> I don't. Because, these are my words, the NATO conference appeared uh, to be tense, and then it was the, the, the summit with uh, Vladimir Putin tended to be less tense. There really shouldn't be any concern there. That, Who's concerned? Concern of the public in uh, the United States, or certain certain Western allies, certain Western allies. I'm sorry. No, there shouldn't be any concern. Of course, the Western allies would like to be pampered by the United States as they uh, were for a long, long time. And now, when uh, Trump refuses to pamper them in the similar fashion, they are upset. Well, anyone would be upset, you know. When you bring a new child home, then the older child usually is upset. 
what should we if we if 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 you start we started this conversation by suggesting that um, our focus United States focus has been on something relatively inconsequential. Uh, where should our focus be over the next few months, or, sh- or, or should we just move on to the next issue? I would say that it is not a matter of the next few months. I do not know what our focus should be in the next few months. I am not a policymaker. I am not engaged in the formation of specific policies. Mm-hmm. But I think that our focus now should be on China and specifically on understanding China. Not confrontational, but understanding what is it we are going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future. We do not understand China. It is completely alien culture to us. We have to acquaint ourselves with it. And, of course, we have to acquaint ourselves with it in a respectful manner, without declaring from the very beginning, oh, they are nothing, you know, and they won't be powerful and uh, the situation will forever be as it was uh, 50 years ago, whatever. We have to start learning about this new power. Uh, how, how do we do that? Because, and I'm, I'm hearkening back to, uh, to earlier in the conversation, Doing what you just suggested has not been a part of our political strategy, at least since 1945, probably longer than that, but it, that hasn't been part of our strategy. So how do we go about that? Because that seems like a, a heavy lift for us. Well, again, uh, I am not a policymaker, and um, I, I, I cannot answer this question in terms in which you ask it. I can only ask this uh, answer this question if I consider it from the educational point sure. of view. Sure, go right ahead, please. So we have to develop programs, a lot of programs uh, of Chinese studies. We have to start uh, developing a core of people who know the language. We have to study Chinese history. We have to, uh, I mean, study Chinese literature. Uh, we have to go deep into that. In the same way, for example, as uh, we developed uh, in the beginning of the Cold War, we developed very good Russian studies, you see, to understand what was certainly our main uh, rival, our main enemy at that time. So we have to throw enormous resources and education uh, into the study of China and uh, it will take at least a generation of developing this kind of uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is how I see it. It's, it's not something that can be done in the next few months, but in the next few months and tomorrow, today, we have to become aware, at the very least, that, that the map of the world, of the political world, has changed. I am sure that the same thing is happening now in Russia, too. They, they have never also, even though they are adjacent geographically, even though Russia conquered part of China in the 19th century and, uh, uh, and annexed it, just as they annexed Crimea now, uh, 
they never paid attention to China. They always despised it, looked down on it as a barbarian country. And so they didn't really devote any attention to it. But And even now, uh, I visited St. Petersburg just, um, just a month ago, and uh, even now people there, uh, scholars, they talk about China with contempt. You know, they don't think that it is extremely important. Uh, but uh, they should be doing the same thing, too. They also should be understanding that this is not... It is China that will become our political arbiter, that things, things would, have, would start happening in uh, world politics with the approval of China. It would be extremely important power. So we all should now turn to it and start studying it, start understanding it. Uh, forget our previous uh, contemptuous or, or neglectful attitude towards it. I, I say, wouldn't we first have to start with what you defined earlier as the globalization of yes. nationalism? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You would have to start with that. You would have to start understanding nationalism. This is very important. Understanding what nationalism is. Uh, instead of just talking about it, you know, understanding actually what it is and what it does to people. And that it is spreading. And, and the most important thing that happened to the history of nationalism is this spread, penetration, into the other civilizations. Because we didn't say a word about India, but India is also there, and it is also colossal, and it would follow very closely on the heels of China to become a superpower. And together, those, just those two countries, I'm not even speaking about their spheres of influence of those two, they're so large. It is almost half of humanity. And this half of humanity will now rule the destinies of the world. We have to regroup. We have to reorient ourselves. You make it sound, as I'm listening to you, I'm feeling like part of what you're suggesting is we're still operating to some degree with the old Cold War playbook, where it was just us against Russia. Exactly. This is what we are doing. And just think about that. Uh, just think about it. So it was basically the United States against the Soviet Union, right? Mm. The United States is, together, they were about 600 million people. Now, of course, they're much less. Now with Russia at one, whatever, 140 maybe millions. Well, together we are, what, not not even half a billion, right? No, that's about right. I think, I think we're like 332. Yes, 332 and uh, 130, 140. Not even, not even, not even half a billion. No. Right? And there we are talking about, oh, oh goodness gracious, about such a huge mass, huge mass that what, Almost 3 billion people, right, becoming motivated for the first time. 
because this is what national consciousness does. It gives them direction and motivation, competitive direction and motivation. We have to reorient ourselves. Yes, we must learn new things. We must learn to worry about new things. Boston University professor Leah Greenfeld, thank you so much for joining me today on The Public Orality. You much appreciated your, your wisdom. Thank you very much. That was Professor Leah Greenfeld. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Here is an iconic scene from the 1967 movie The Graduate featuring Benjamin Braddock, played by Dustin Hoffman, and Mr. McGuire, played by Walter Brook. What are you going to do now? I was going to go upstairs for a minute. Oh, I meant with your future. Your life. Well, that's a little hard to say. Ben. Excuse me. Mr. McGuire. Ben. Mr. McGuire. Come with me for a minute. I want to talk to you. Excuse us, Joanne. Of course. Thank you. Oh, he is such a good friend. I look at him and I can't believe it. I simply can't believe it. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. That's a deal. Instead of Mr. McGuire's call to focus on plastics, there's a new word that we should focus our economic attention. Soybeans. That's right. Soybeans. According to Bloomberg News, China, the world's biggest soybean importer, almost tripled its purchases from Russia amid a trade dispute with the United States, the world's biggest producer. Russia recently sold an estimated 850,000 metric tons of soybeans to China. That's more than during any season before and compares with about 340,000 tons sold during all of the previous year. Moreover, Russia may expand by as much as 20% during the next two years. Bloomberg also reported earlier this year China canceled multiple U.S. shipments in recent weeks ahead of tariffs, including 62,690-ton purchase on April the 19th. China included soybeans on its list of tariffs on U.S. products last month in response to President Trump's $150 billion tariff against Chinese imports. This is the predictable byproduct of President Trump's unexamined trade policy. No one wins a trade war. It is invariably a war of attrition that lasts until cooler heads prevail. The president has valid overarching critiques of the U.S. trade imbalance. The problem, however, rests with his prescription. It is based on an economic scenario 
better suited for the 1980s. It is difficult to make America great again when enacting policies that punishes American farmers. That is certainly not a path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.